It's a wonderful uh, way to spend an afternoon together, isn't it? Out rather in the rain. Um, thank you for coming. Unfortunately, our time is one in which the storm clouds of religious intolerance seem to cast their shadow over what we children of Abraham hold in common. Muslims, Christians, and Jews have much more to learn from one another about what might bind, a, bind us together than what divides us. These are indeed difficult times when we must be courageous enough to ask about our common heritage. This is in fact what drove the faculty here at UCSB to invite Bruce Feiler to our campus this afternoon for another Taubman Jewish Studies Symposium. There is much to say about Bruce Feiler. He is a native, as many of you know, of Savannah, Georgia. That, that puts him in a very good stand with my chairman, Clark Roof, who's just up the coast from uh, Savannah, I believe. Um, he's a graduate of Yale and Cambridge universities. And, as many of you also know, he writes frequently for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Gourmet, where he is a contributing editor. He is also a contributor to National Public Radio. He has received awards for excellence in music, journalism, the Culinary Professionals Award for Excellence in Food Journalism, and three James Beard Awards for writing about food and restaurants. He has also been the subject of at least one Jay Leno joke, and also a Jeopardy question. And to top all that off, his face appears on a postage stamp in the Grenadines. All of that, I'm sure, is important, but the reason why, uh, why, why we have brought him here is that he is the author of six best-selling books, including Learning to Bow, which was published in 1991, and is a humorous narrative of the year he spent teaching in a small Japanese town, then Looking for Class, which brings to life two of the world's most prestigious academic institutions, Oxford and Cambridge. Then also, and this is fantastic, Under the Big Top, which depicts the turbulent and engrossing year he spent performing as a clown in the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers Circus. In other words, he really fulfilled our dreams. Remember running away to the circus? to be a clown. He also is the author of Dreaming Out Loud, which describes his adventures on the road with Garth Brooks, Winona Judd, and a young man by the name of Wade Hayes, who is following his dream to be a star on the Nashville circuit. And this book, a number of reviewers have described as an essential volume in a library of work on contemporary American music. His Walking the Bible, A Journey by Land Through the Five Books of Moses, is nothing short of an extraordinary narrative of his perilous 10,000-mile journey retracing the greatest stories ever told through the desert. Walking the Bible was hailed as, quote, an instant classic, end quote, by the Washington Post. 
and, quote, a thoughtful, informed, and, pers and perspective, perceptive by the New York Times. Named one of the best books of the year by the Los Angeles Times, it spent more than a year on the New York Times bestseller list. It has been translated into 15 languages and will be the subject of an upcoming children's book and PBS documentary. Bruce Feiler's latest book is a work of immense importance, Abraham, A Journey to the Heart of Three Faiths, and it recounts his personal search for the shared ancestor of Jews, Christians, and Muslims. The Boston Globe described it as exquisitely written, 100% engrossing. The book was featured on the cover of Time magazine and became a runaway New York Times bestseller and was named one of the best books of the year by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Christian Science Monitor, even Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Borders, Beliefnet.com, and Publishers Weekly. It inspired thousands of grassroots interfaith discussions around the world, and it too will be an upcoming PBS documentary. Please now welcome to Santa Barbara, Bruce Feiler. I feel after hearing that introduction, I should be coming out in a wooden box. Um, but I'm alive, I'm here, and um, a lot of that is true about me. The, um, in fact, it's been quite a, quite a few years in my life, as you heard, my last book was on the cover of Time Magazine, and I, I, I was, not only was I the subject of a Jay Leno joke, I was the subject of one of the worst Jay Leno jokes in, in recent memory. When, when Walking the Bible was published in uh, March 2001, um, there was this huge feature about me in USA Today, and that night Jay Leno said, hey, did you hear about this guy? He, he, he wrote this book, Walking in the Bible. That's really what mattered to me, is the name of the book was on uh, The Tonight Show. And it's about this guy who retraced the Bible through the Middle East, but he didn't tell his wife. He stopped off in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. A slow, as we say in my business, that's a slow news day. That's a slow joke day. Um, and uh, then it's true, I, am, I learned that I am my face, but it is actually my face as a clown uh, that is on a postage stamp in the Grenadines. And sort of the way my mind works, you heard that I, one of the things I do in my parallel lives, uh, in my many parallel lives, is I work for Gourmet Magazine. So I've been trying to convince Gourmet to send me to the Grenadines to, to claim the parade in my honor and to see if anybody slaps the back of my head. It's two the stamp actually is $2. I mean, it's not even across the island. I mean, it, it's across the ocean. Um, and then, really, I, and maybe the most interesting thing that's happened to me is that um, I was the subject of this Jeopardy question. Uh, so we'll, we'll, it's actually, I should say, a Jeopardy answer, if you're going to really be pedantic about it. Um, so but we'll try it out. So the, the answer was uh, Bruce Feiler's best, it was in double Jeopardy, first of all. Um, and it was Bruce, Bruce, the subtitle of Bruce Feiler's best-selling biography of this biblical patriarch was A Journey to the Heart of Three Faiths. It's got to be in the form of a question. <laughs> so most of you just missed it. Anyway, who was it? Someone won $1,200 for that. <laughs> Amazing. 
Anyway, good afternoon. Thank you all for coming, and I guess braving what is a flood. I was told on the way over here that Santa Barbarans, or whatever you're called, Santa Barbarans don't know how to drive in the rain, so I'm delighted to see that so many of you um, have learned that skill. Um, I guess you've had a lot of practice in recent days. Um, I'm really delighted to be here, and I gather, as you know, if you read the paper yesterday, um, that I've literally come all the way from Baghdad uh, to be here. Um, I've just come back from several weeks in Iraq, uh, working on an article for Parade Magazine and what will be the bulk of my uh, a new book, which will be coming out, I hope, next year. So I, I've literally been on the road pretty much four days nonstop driving and flying and getting caught in snowstorms and blowing tires on mountaintops in, in southern Turkey in order to be here. And, and an enormous amount of effort, I, you just heard uh, Leonard talking about, an enormous cooperation among the university and several foundations and the federation and the synagogue have gone together to bring us all here this afternoon. And I just would like to take a second to acknowledge that. And if, if, if you guys could all just once again thank all the people who made this possible, it would mean a lot to me. Thank you. I, I recently had occasion to look at the April 12, 1966 cover story in Time magazine. And what was interesting was to read in the, letter, the editor's letter in the front of this magazine um, reported that in the then, whatever it was, 35, 40 year history of Time magazine, this issue in April 1966 was the first issue not to have an image of a person on the cover. The cover um, was solid black and had three words in red that said, Is God Dead? And the subject of this cover story was essentially that um, a, a new band of theologians was proposing the idea that secular ideology had triumphed, that God had recessed from public life, and the role of religion in world affairs was uh, lower than it had been in any time in human history. Oh, how long ago that seems. Pick up any newspaper today, turn on any television, turn on the radio. The dominant stories in our world today have to do with religion. Let's just take a second and scan them. Afghanistan, what's happening between Israel and the Palestinians. And I note for those of you who may have not seen the news today that there was a another suicide bombing on bus number 14. When I first went to Israel, actually, in 1998, and stayed with a friend who lived on Bethlehem Road, I used to take bus number 14 uh, into the city. And I spent a lot of last fall, actually, in Israel, staying in the Inbal Hotel, which is just a block from where this bomb went off this morning, killing uh, eight people and, and wounding at least 50. So you've got Afghanistan. What's going on between Israelis and the Palestinians? Certainly what's going on in Iraq uh, on a daily basis. And then look at domestic uh, affairs in the United States. Scandal in the Catholic Church. Controversy in the Episcopal Church over the gay bishop. The Ten Commandments. Uh, you know, uh, controversy that transpired in Alabama in the last uh, six months. And look at our cultural life. What's the biggest book in the country today? The Da Vinci Code. What's about to be the biggest movie in America today? The Passion of the Christ. For the f Once again, at the start of this new century, the dominant issues in the world today have to do with religion and specifically with the question, can the religions 
figure out a way to relate to one another that is not by trying to extinguish one another, which of course is the dominant way the great religions have related to one another for the last 2,000 years. That's in a sense what we're going to talk about here this afternoon, but I'd like to take a step back for a minute and talk a little bit about how I ended up uh, participating in this conversation. As you heard, and as many of you know, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, and um, I was uh, with some people earlier today, and they were saying, yeah, it, it may be surprising to you, but yes, there are Jews in Santa Barbara. And I was saying, if you think it's odd that there are Jews in Santa Barbara, imagine what it's like coming from Savannah, Georgia. The, um, I uh, then spent about 10 years of my life living and traveling around the world, as you just heard the litany of what I did earlier in my life, living in Japan, England, the American South, and yes, it is true, I did spend this year as a clown performing in the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers Circus. And then about in the middle of this process, I'd say about seven or eight years ago, I decided that I wanted to reread the Bible. I hadn't read it since I was a kid, which meant, as a practical matter, I hadn't really read it. So I was living in Washington at the time. I took the Bible off my shelf. I put it by my bed, where it promptly sat untouched for two years, gathering dust and making me feel even guiltier. Then I went to visit an old friend who was living in Jerusalem. Uh, let me just interrupt myself. Who's been to Israel here, to the Middle East? So I went to visit this friend, and on my first day, uh, my friend was giving a tour to some high school students, and we went to the promenade, this promenade overlooking Jerusalem that many people visit on their first trip to Jerusalem. And my friend said, over there is Har Choma, this controversial neighborhood they were building in Palestinian territory. And over there is the rock where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. And it just struck me like this bolt of lightning. You mean these are real places that you can touch and visit and feel? And the crazy way I lived my life, I thought, here's an idea. What if I travel along the route and read the Bible along the way? A few people thought this was a good idea. In fact, everywhere I went for the next six months, people tried to talk me out of it. Most of those places are unsafe. Many of them are in war zones. There's no archaeological evidence that any of these events ever took place. And that was before I told my mother. But, but basically, once these ideas took root in my head, I was not going to be dissuaded. And I went back six months later, and I, um, and I went to see a man named um, Avraham Biran, who uh, is the dean of biblical archaeologists. I see some people nodding out there. He works at the Hebrew Union College. And I went to see him in his office overlooking the old city. And he's this sort of short, elfin man. And he sort of looked at me behind clouds of cigarette smoke. At the time, he was 88 years old. And he said, um, he's one of the people who thought it was a bad idea. He said, people like me are far too busy to talk to people like you. But he's this, he just is this delightful personality. He began pulling up shards of pottery out of drawers and books off his shelves. And he called me at home that night and he said, what you need is someone with a sense of poetry and a sense of knowledge. What you need is Avner Gorin. A few days later, I was in the Sinai in the desert, and I was camping, and I met some young guides, and I told them what I wanted to do, and they said, what you need is Avner Gorin. That was enough for me. I went back to Jerusalem. I'd never heard of Avner Gorin. Avner is an archaeologist. At the time, he was in his 50s. And I called him up, and he agreed to come meet me. And he, he arrived in this rickety blue Subaru that was older than Abraham. And um, on that morning, he had this sort of gray hair that was squiggling everywhere. He looked a little bit like Winnie the Pooh. And he had this white scarf that was 
flowing behind his neck that made him look like Lawrence halfway out of Oxford on his way to Arabia or something. Anyway, we ran around the corner. We had a cup of coffee. I told him what I wanted to do. I went through this long litany, and I said, half the people tell me I'm out of my mind. He said, well, I don't think you're out of your mind. I think it sounds kind of fun. I was like, oh, thank God. Somehow I knew you would. And by the way, would you come along? And blessedly for me, he agreed. And I went back to New York, and where I'd moved at that time, and I spent the next year getting myself a self-taught master's degree in the history of the Bible, reading 150 books or so. And I went back at the end of that year, and the two of us made this journey that took about a year, covering 10,000 miles across three continents, five countries, four war zones, visiting the sites in the Hebrew Bible, and then reading the stories along the way. Walking the Bible came out, as I said earlier, in March of 2001 and became that writer's fantasy of a book that touches people around the world. And I will tell you, a day doesn't go by when I'm not moved and transformed by that experience. And the success of that book actually allowed me to keep going, and I spent the next six months working on a follow-up trek through the Middle East when I got a call from my brother on the morning of September 11th. Look outside your window. I was in New York that morning and watched the towers fall from my home. And as you've all heard and we all remember, it was the most beautiful day any of us could remember. You could see forever. And in those weeks afterwards, we began to hear these questions. Who are they? Why do they hate us? Can the religions get along? And if you listen closely, one name echoed behind those conversations. One man stood at the heart of all three religions that suddenly seemed to be at war. Abraham. 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 The great patriarch of the Hebrew Bible is also the spiritual forefather of the New Testament and the grand holy architect of the Koran. He's the shared ancestor of Jews, Christians, and Muslims. That means he's the father, in many cases the biological father, of 12 million Jews, 2 billion Christians, and 1 billion Muslims around the world. That's half the humans alive today. And yet, he's virtually unknown. I wanted to know him. I wanted to understand his legacy and his appeal. Consider this, the most mesmerizing story of Abraham's life is his decision to nearly sacrifice his son to God. You would think that that story is so barbaric it would have died out over time. Instead, Jews read that story in their holiest week of the year at Rosh Hashanah. Christians read that story, the same story, in their holiest week of the year at Easter. And Muslims read that story, the same story, in their holiest week of the year at the end of the, at the, end of the Hajj. Well, why is that? Because I suggest it's the story that cuts closest to our veins and poses the question we hope never to face. Would I kill for God? And as we all learned on September 11th and, and are reminded almost every day, the answer for many people around the world is still yes. And so two weeks after that date, I got up off my sofa and I went on a search. I went back to the Middle East in the middle of the war. I went back to the text. And in many ways, I went deep inside myself as I tried to answer that question that countless generations have asked before. Can Abraham help heal the world? So 
So before we get to that big question, let's ask a very simple question. Who is Abraham? At the start of Genesis, as you all know, God creates the world. And from the very beginning, he goes looking for a human partner to spread his blessing to everyone on earth. At first, he tries Adam. Well, Adam, as we know, prefers Eve to God, so that doesn't work. So God banishes them. Ten generations, the Bible tells us. Ten generations pass. Then God taps Noah. Noah builds the ark, saves the animals, but then he starts drinking. Noah prefers liquor to God. Strike two. Once again, ten generations, the same number, ten generations pass. And God goes looking for a new kind of human. He needs someone who needs him. God needs Abraham. So why does Abraham need God? Well, we first meet Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. And all we're told is that he's 75 years old. He lives in Ur of the Chaldeans. And I guess I really should say um, at this point that um, finally, after almost 10 years of trying, I was, 10 days ago, I was in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is located in extreme southern Iraq. Essentially what happens is the Tigris and Euphrates begin up in Turkey, come down through Syria, and then basically travel near parallel all the way down through uh, Iraq and then dump into the Persian Gulf. And in antiquity, the two rivers, it appears, never met. They just continued to travel down and went right into the Gulf. But what's happened is the rivers would, in the same way that the Nile, when it was traveling north through Africa, would bring all this silt and deposit the silt on the shores of ancient Egypt, which has allowed the creation of the great empires of Egypt. The Tigris and Euphrates were also bringing silt, and this silt has created an, an additional 160 miles or so of of solid land that's essentially around Kuwait today that was not there before. So now what happens is actually the Tigris and Euphrates can meet right uh, north of Basra, whereas in the past they never met. Anyway, at the bottom of this, in extreme southern Iraq today, near the town of Nasriya, for those of you who are following the geography in the current war, um, is where really the first great empire in civiliza- uh, and, and civilization in antiquity, Sumer, was founded. And it was essentially founded here because the Tigris and Euphrates were up, up north. They, they moved too quickly, and you couldn't really um, make diversions from them, and you couldn't use the water for agriculture. But they, were, they sort of were flattened out as they got low into Iraq, and they were able to build canals and build agriculture. And for the first time, people had something they never had before, which is free time. And they began to tell themselves stories stories about where they came from and where they were going, and that sort of created the, the beginnings of civilization, say, say 10,000 years ago. And Sumer was founded, say, five or 6,000 years ago. And today, the, the remains of ancient Sumer exist in this site, which is actually connected to an American Air Force base uh, um, that was put there during the war. And there is this ziggurat, uh, a ziggurat being the sort of stepped pyramid kind of structure that was, in this case, this pyramid, this ziggurat was built about 4,000 years ago. And that um, is the capital of ancient Sumer, which was called Ur. The Bible says that Abraham's family was born in Ur of the Chaldeans. The term Chaldea is actually a later term that gets added to the story. But so the idea is that Abraham was born here. 
The Bible's a bit vague as to whether he was born there. there. Obviously, there's no evidence that Abraham was born there. But the idea would be that Abraham was born here in Ur and then traveled up the Tigris-Euphrates Valley to Haran, which is where God gives him the call, which we'll get to in a second. And that's actually up in Turkey today. So back to Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, we're told that Abraham's family is living in Ur. Abraham is 75 years old. He's married to Sarah. They can't have a child. Every other leader, I mean, it's even in the Bible, there are kids. Think about it. Jesus is a baby. Moses is a baby. David is a young boy. Abraham is 75 years old when we meet him. And he's married and he can't have a child. It's a story about creation and he cannot create. In effect, he's the anti-God. Which, of course, may be the point. Because God is looking for someone who needs him as much as, um, as, much as God needs this person. And so what happens in Genesis 12 is that God calls out to Abraham and offers him a deal. Now at this point I'd just like to tell a brief story. In um, October 1977, I stepped never shaven to the pulpit of Mikvah Israel Synagogue in Savannah, Georgia. I was wearing a brand new blue suit and a blue, red, and white necktie. My hair, which alas was still blonde at the time, was brushed twice over my ears. I was nervous. And as a clear light shined through the stained glass window, I carried a, a Torah from the open arc in the back to the front of the small stage. I took off the crowns and the breastplate and the cloth mantle, and each gesture was done a little too meticulously and took slightly longer than it should have. And finally, I unfurled the scrolls on the table, grabbed the pointer in my hand, and read in halting, uncertain Hebrew, Vayomer Hashem. El Avram Lechlecha. The words were the opening verses of Genesis chapter 12, in which God calls out to Abraham to go forth from his native land and set off for the promised land. These words had even more meaning for me because it was the same portion my brother had read at his bar mitzvah three years earlier. And also, my mother's maiden name is Abe's house, house of Abraham. But of all the events, those, that few week, those few days, that weekend, the one I remember most clearly occurred that night. It was Saturday night. My parents had some friends and family over to our house for a party. And about halfway through, my father calls me over to the bar, orders a gin and tonic, hands it to me and says, Son, you're a man now. You're responsible for your own actions. And it wasn't until much later that I realized that part of the legacy of Abraham is coming from a cozy place, but being prepared to leave that place that not until you, you can't have the, your family of your own until you first leave the family you grew up with. Not until I was much later did I realize all the layers of meaning in the story or its purpose in my life. And fortunately, my parents had understood it first. It was my dad himself who said, go forth. That moment in Genesis 12 is the moment when all humans are called to go forth. Go forth from your native land, God says, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and curse him that curses you, and all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. Now many things stun about these words. First of all, Abraham is asked to leave his native land and his father's house, which is difficult enough under any circumstances. But it's made more profound by the fact that he's aging, his wife is barren, and he doesn't even know where he's going. And yet, what incentive God offers? God says, not only will he have a son, which is what he wants, 
but he'll become the father of a great nation, and all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by him. And yet still, he faces a terrifying choice. And I think for all of us who are descendants of Abraham, for everybody in this room, I dare say, at one moment or another, is to face a similar choice. When we look back at our comfortable past and peer ahead at our uncertain future and wonder, do I have the courage to make the leap? Abraham makes the leap and secures his reputation for all time. It's one of the defining moments in human history. God chooses Abraham, and Abraham chooses God. All three religions share awe for this moment. At the heart of what's going on today, at the heart of the front pages of every paper in the world today, is common ground. Okay, so what happens? Abraham and his family, they leave Mesopotamia, they go down to the Promised Land, there's a famine, they go down to Egypt, they come back, decades pass, still no son. So, so Sarah decides to take matters into her own hands. She takes her handmaid Hagar, gives Hagar to Abraham, Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. Ta-da! Abraham has a son. End of story. But as soon as Ishmael is born, Sarah gets pregnant and gives birth to Isaac. Now we have two sons. Rivals for the same land, for Abraham's love, and for God's blessing. So once again, Sarah takes matters into her own hands, and she forces Abraham to kick Ishmael off into the desert. Ishmael doesn't want to. It, I mean, excuse me, Abraham doesn't want to. Ishmael's his firstborn son. But he does so only after God says, Don't worry, I'll continue to bless Ishmael and all of his descendants as well. This is the split that we all face today. Muslims, as you know, consider themselves descended from Ishmael, Jews and Christians from Isaac. But what's striking about this moment is that even though Ishmael goes off into the desert, he never leaves the realm of Abraham's love or of God's blessing. God blesses Abraham, blesses both of his sons, blesses all of their descendants. At the heart of everything in the story is a clear message of unity. Or is there? Now, one of the first things I did on this journey of mine was to go back to Jerusalem, um, and I happened to get there at this particular time at the last, it was, the, it was this particular moment that happens every now and then, which is that it was the last Friday of Ramadan, the, the Muslim holy month when believers fast. It was the last Friday of Hanukkah, and it was the last Friday before Christmas. So I got up one morning and I went to this perch overlooking the old city, and to stand there is to witness a tableau facing all the world's religions. On the far side is the Mount of Olives, where Jesus waited the night before he died. In front is the Western Wall, where Jews nod and pray, the holiest spot in Judaism. And in the middle is the Temple Mount, which of course is where the Israelites built their temple, where Jesus walked, and where later Muslims built, excuse me, Muslims built Al-Aqsa. The defining spiritual fact of Jerusalem is this. Any genuflection, any camera angle, any prayer that encompasses at least one of these holy spots must encompass at least another of these holy spots. You cannot build a wall to separate the religions. They must, simply must, coexist. Okay, so this morning, it's the last Friday of Ramadan. There are the thousands of Jews coming to the, to the streets to gather for the holiest day of the year on top of the Temple Mount. And because the violence often occurs on holy days, up where I am, there's a bunch of Israeli soldiers with helmets and machine guns and walkie-talkies waiting to see if violence erupts down below. By noon, there are 200,000 Muslims gathered on the Temple Mount. 
and they rise for the holiest day of the year, prayer of the year, where they stand, bend, kneel, touch their foreheads to the ground, stand, bend, kneel, and do it again. It looks like giant waves of milk as they go down and come back up. And as they're doing it down below, there are hundreds of Jews nodding and praying and tucking notes into the wall. And then at noon, high noon, two dozen of the holiest churches in Christendom all burst into Christmas carols. And then, just as suddenly as the most joyful sound of faith you will ever hear, the bells go quiet, the praying stops, and everyone holds his breath. What will happen now? The stories about Abraham that we just went through appear in Genesis. I know you've all come out in this flood and at the risk of breaking your heart, there's no archaeological evidence that any of these events ever took place. Now, you would think that would be a problem for the religions who base their identity in part on Abraham's life. In fact, the opposite happened. Each of the religions just viewed it as an opportunity. Each of the religions just chucked out the initial story of Abraham and proceeded to make up its own Abraham. In fact, every generation for the last 2,500 years or so has made up its own Abraham. So it turns out that my journey was a lot more complicated than I thought because I wasn't just looking for one Abraham, I was looking for 240 different Abrahams. Now Jews came first because, of course, Judaism came first. In the early years of Judaism, the rabbis said, Abraham is a universal figure who spreads his blessing to all the families of the earth. But over time, as Jews began to feel oppressed, they began to say, well, actually, never mind. We want to keep Abraham to ourselves. So suddenly, Abraham becomes the reason God created the world, which occurred a thousand years before Abraham was born. Abraham becomes the reason for Passover, which comes a thousand years after Abraham died and with Moses. Abraham even starts keeping kosher, even though the laws of kosher weren't invented until 2,000 years after Abraham was born. In fact, Abraham serves milk and meat together to God in the story. In other words, Abraham, who lives 1,500 years before the birth of Judaism, suddenly becomes a Jew. Now, as a reader, a citizen, and especially as a Jew, I was horrified. What happened to the kind Uncle Abraham I learned about in Bar Mitzvah class? But worse, the door the Jews opened, everyone else came rushing through. Early Christians, like Paul, said Abraham was such a universal figure, his blessing should be open to all the families of the earth. Abraham was so important to early Christians, his name appears in the first sentence of the New Testament. But over time, as Christians began to grow uh, stronger, they began to use Abraham less as a figure to include Gentiles and more as a figure to exclude Jews. So suddenly, um, God doesn't call Abraham to go forth. In Genesis 12, Jesus calls Abraham to go forth. God doesn't promise the land to followers, to, excuse me, to descendants of Abraham, but to followers of Jesus. In other words, when Jews turned Abraham into a Jew, when he wasn't that, Christians turned him into a Christian, when he wasn't that, either. And guess where the story is going? <laughs> Along comes Muhammad, 600 years, early, 600 years later. In the early years of Islam, Muhammad said, Abraham is a universal figure. His blessings should go to all the families of the earth, not just to the Jews and the Christians. But over time, as Islam grows more powerful, the Muslim commentators began to use, to say that, to use Abraham less as a figure to include Muslims with Jews and Christians and more as a figure to separate Muslims from Jews and Christians. 
So suddenly in the Muslim commentaries, Abraham prefers Ishmael to Isaac. Abraham calls all Muslims to make the pilgrimage. Abraham even builds with his own hands the Kaaba, that big black stone in the middle of Mecca that all Muslims walk around when they make the pilgrimage. In other words, Jews, excuse me, uh, Muslims turned Abraham into a Muslim. Let's just take one example of this. In Genesis 22, God says to, to God says um, to, uh, in Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, "Take your son, your favored one, Isaac, whom you love, and take him up to the mountain that I will show you and offer him as a burnt offering." As you know, Abraham takes Isaac, they go up to the mountain, Abraham binds Isaac to the rock, raises his hand to slay him, and at the last moment the angel calls out, now I know that you love God, they find a, a ram in the bushes, and the boy's life is spared, um, or the man's life, we don't know how old he is, and they, Abraham sacrifices the ram instead. Okay? This story appears in Genesis 22, it then disappears from human history. It is mentioned no place else in the human Bible. Abraham's mentioned all the time, but not the story. None of the prophets ever mentioned it. Why? We don't know. Maybe they were uncomfortable. Maybe they thought it was barbaric. We don't know. The story disappears. It begins to reemerge a couple hundred years before the birth of Christ when Jews are being oppressed, first by the Romans and then by the Hasmoneans. And they need a symbol of their oppression. And they go back to the story. But they don't care about Abraham, like we all do. They care about Isaac. It was like my dad said when I was young. You want to be a good Jew kid? you got to learn how to suffer. Well, they, they thought Abraham, Isaac was the great sufferer of all time, and so they found great identity in Isaac. Along come the Christians. They liked the story, but for a different reason. Because Christian commentators saw all sorts of similarities between what happened between Abraham and Isaac and what happened between God and Jesus. Just as um, Isaac carries his own wood up to the altar, so Jesus carries his cross up to his altar. Just as the uh, ram comes from the bush, so Jesus wears a crown of thorns. But some Christians who wanted to distance themselves from Jews um, began to use this story to prove that. So they said, actually, Abraham's love for Isaac was inferior to God's love for Jesus because Abraham stopped short of killing Isaac, whereas God did not stop short of killing Jesus. Well, the Jews heard this and they said, well, we're not going to take this sitting down or whatever idiom they used at the time. So the, the, the Jewish commentators began to say, well, guess what? Abraham did kill Isaac. They, and how did they explain this? Well, they said Abraham got there, and they noticed the fact that the angel has to call out twice in the story. So they said the first time the angel got there a little late, Abraham killed Isaac. Isaac went away for three days to heaven, and then came back, and the second time the angel called out, this time Abraham heard him, and Isaac's life, Isaac's life was spared. This story was so popular in the Middle Ages that, Jewish, that Jews actually put ashes on their foreheads to commemorate the death of Isaac. If that sounds familiar, it is, because of course they got it from Christianity. And you begin to see how the interpretations change and mold over time. Along comes Islam. The story of Abraham sacrificing his son appears in the Quran. The son is not named. I'm going to repeat myself because there's such confusion about this. The son is not named in the Quran. Which son was it? About half the Muslims said it was Isaac because the Bible said it's Isaac and the Bible is a holy book. And the other half said it was Ishmael. How did they explain that? Take your son, God says in the start of Genesis 22. Your favored one. Well, why does he have to say which one? Isaac 
Hmm. And then after God says Isaac, he has to say, whom you love, as if what Abraham feels toward Isaac isn't clear to Abraham. So take your son, your favorite one, whom you love. Everybody knows that's Ishmael, the Muslim said. And clearly the Jews and Christians inserted Isaac into the text because they were jealous of Ishmael. So you had an Isaac camp and an Ishmael camp, and they were rivalrous, and over time, for political reasons, the Ishmael camp prevailed. So now you stop 100 Muslims on the street, and you say, which son was killed? They'll say, it's Ishmael. And you can see, again, how the interpretations end up saying much more about when the interpretations were written than they say about the original story. So you see what I did was I worked myself into this knot, how the universal figure of Abraham, who spread his blessing to all the families of the earth, eventually became the object of bloody battle among his descendants. And the way I tried to unpack this was to travel, was to go forth, if you will. In this case, to seek out religious leaders and scholars of all denominations. And what they told me to a person is that we can't walk away from this legacy of interpretation. In fact, understanding it is the only way to reach hope. One morning I trekked deep into East Jerusalem, climbed a dark set of stairs, excuse me, and walked into a small whitewashed room. About 10.45, a broad-shouldered man walked in. I offered him a seat next to me. He declined and sat across the room. Sheikh Yusuf Abu Snaina is the imam of Al-Aqsa, the third holiest mosque in Islam. He had, these, he had this dark hair and this, and this beard and these dark eyebrows that reminded me, against my will, of Ayatollah Khomeini. He was also nervous. This was his first ever conversation with a non-Muslim reporter. Our conversation was stilted. I, I asked him about Abraham. He said, Abraham loved God. We should try to be like him. Um, he, the first time he lightened up at all was when I asked him about the pilgrimage. All Muslims are required to make it at least once. He made it five times. When you walk around the Kaaba, you get the feeling that God tested Abraham, he said. It's very moving. And I waited a long time before bringing up the topic of politics. And finally I said, if given all the events in the world, I should feel despair, or could the spirit of Abraham prevail? If Jews, Christians, and Muslims follow what's mentioned in the text, he said, we can reach unity. But we have two different texts, I said. But the message is the same, he said. I'd like to believe that. I said I really would, but I live in New York. People are flying planes into buildings. How can I not feel sadness? You should feel sadness, he said, but still, hope must endure. And for the first time all morning, his eyes burned, and you could see he was a preacher, a leader. Abraham was a man of faith, he said. He loved God. He invented monotheism. If we look beyond the details which we may disagree about and focus on the message of Abraham, truth, morality, and coexistence, most of our problems will disappear. He finished with his flourish and stood up, and I stood up, and we shook hands, and, and I considered embracing him, but eh, stop short. The Imam of Al-Aqsa has said we could focus on the message of Abraham. It seemed like enough of an embrace. The last thing I did on my journey was sit out one morning on the road to Hebron. It's one of the bloodiest cities on the planet, the epicenter of Muslim-Jewish conflict. I set out south from Jerusalem on what's called the Sniper Road because gunmen shoot down on cars that are traveling below. I was in a Palestinian car and I got to the settlement of Kiryat Arba, got out of the car, got into a, uh, an Israeli car, drove down the hill to what's called the Tomb of the Patriarchs, this giant building that looks like a cross between a gymnasium and a castle. Last time I was there, there were 10,000 Jews dancing in the streets. Today it was empty. 
so unsafe that four Israeli soldiers with helmets and machine guns, four, had to escort me inside. In fact, as we're walking up the stairs, I, I said to the commander, pretty quiet day. He's like, keep walking, kid. <laughs> the room between Abraham and Sarah's tombs has been turned into a ramshackle synagogue. Um, there were overturned chairs and a stack of prayer books. A chandelier hung down from the ceiling. Half the balls were out. And it's here where Abraham, age 175, dies. And in one of the most haunting yet overlooked passages in the Hebrew Bible, Genesis 25.9, his sons, Ishmael and Isaac, rivals since before they were born, leaders of opposing nations, estranged since childhood, come, stand side by side and bury their father. Abraham achieves in death what he could never achieve in life. A moment of reconciliation between his two sons. A side-by-side -side glimmer of possibility when they're not rivals, warriors, Jews, Christians, or Muslims. They're brothers. They're mourners. They're us. Forever weeping for the loss of our common father, furious and full of dreams, wondering and demanding answers. What did you want from me, father? What did you leave me with, father? And what do I do? Now, as I was sitting there, this um, gray, white, gray pigeon with white speckles on its neck flew into the chamber, crashed into the gate of Abraham's uh, tomb, soared toward the top of the room, flapping its wings faster and faster, sucking the air up into its vortex, clamoring, clawing, grasping for what it knew was there, a way out. In those weeks after 9-11, the feeling that rose up inside of me was one of feeling trespassed against and violated, a physical feeling of being afraid. And then one day I recognized that feeling. It's the one we have every day in the Middle East. Terror, pride, connection to place. September 11, 2001 was the day the Middle East came to America. The tiny fertile crescent of land had finally conquered the far side of the earth. Middle Eastern sprawl had reached the United States. And that's why I went on this journey, because I wanted to understand the depth of mistrust among the, the religions, because I needed to be alone, and ultimately because I needed Abraham. And I found him, not in the books or the leaders or the caves. In a sense, I found him everywhere. Abraham, I came to think, he's like water. He's this ever-flowing stream that exists just underneath the surface of the earth for as long as humans have told themselves stories. And in every generation, in moments of joy or crisis, we tap into that source. And just as God chose Abraham, we chose an Abraham. We choose an Abraham for ourselves. So what should our Abraham look like? I think he should look like us. He should surf the internet. He should need to lose 10 pounds. But mostly he should represent what he's represented for 4,000 years. He should be a bridge between humanity and the divine. He should spread a message of unity. But he should know that his children will not always love God. They'll fight, murder, send planes into buildings, send bombs into schools, and generally try to squander God's generosity. But this Abraham believes, against all belief, that his children still crave God. They long for a moment when they can stand alongside one another and pray for their lost father and for the legacy of peace that was his initial mandate from heaven. This Abraham is neither Jew nor Christian nor Muslim. He's not flawless. 
He's not a saint, but he is himself the man at the heart of the world's oldest family feud. Abraham, I choose him. Now before I pause and answer questions, I would just like to tell one more story, and that is that my journey for Abraham did not end that day in Hebron. As I was preparing for the uh, writing my book and preparing for its publication, I wanted to do a, a, a small thing to help advance this conversation that's going on around the world, and I understand it's going on here as well. So I came up with this idea that we, we, we could that maybe we could initiate a program and invite people to have small grassroots interfaith conversations, Abraham salons we could call them. So I put together this discussion packet that had passages from the Bible and the Koran and discussion questions, and even from my friends at Gourmet, a, a brownie and a baklava recipe. <laughs> Triple chocolate brownies, one for each religion. That's actually literally what it says. So I had this idea of, here's an idea, we can get 50 to 100 of these things going on around the country. And I sort of boasted that we could do that, and I went home, and I can be my mother and my friends in Vermont. And Well, we created these packets, and within a couple of weeks we sent out 250. We made 250 more. Within a couple of weeks we sent them out. And then I mentioned this on television one day. Within 24 hours, 1,200 people had gone to my website, which is brucefiler.com, and started downloading this material. And in the last year and a half... 5,000 people around the world have gone to my website, downloaded this material, and begun to have these conversations around the world. And about six months ago, I got an email from one of those people. And the email said, Dear Mr. Filer, um, I have just read... Uh, it said, Dear Mr. Filer, I'm an army chaplain stationed in Baghdad, and I've just read your book, and I find it very... He went on to say very nice things about my book. And he said, I'd, I'm interested in getting bulk copies so I can give out to the troops here in Iraq and with the local religious leaders that I work with. And he signed his name, Sincerely Lou Messenger, Chaplain, 1st Armored Division, Baghdad, Iraq. And to make a long story short, my publisher shipped a bunch of books uh, over to Chaplain Messenger uh, at the 1st Armored Division in Baghdad. And a week ago yesterday... When I was in Baghdad, I went to this army base, the Rusafa army base in Camp Melody in, uh, off of Canal Road in Baghdad, where we proceeded to have one of these conversations in Abraham Salon with about a dozen U.S. troops, some local Iraqi workers, and an imam who came from the 14 Ramadan Mosque in the center of Baghdad. It's the mosque you see every time you see it on CNN. It's across from the hotel where CNN is, and it's about, the front door of this mosque is a, maybe 10 steps from the pedestal where the statue of Saddam Hussein fell last April 9th. And we sat around. Chaplain uh, Messenger, I'm afraid, was on leave. Chaplain Bonora, who is a, an evangelical Baptist from uh, Oregon. Uh, this Sunni Muslim, uh, im this imam, who, uh, Obaidi, who's there, myself, and all these troops... And what was interesting about this conversation is I think it reflects a lot of what happens in these interfaith conversations. For a while, it was terribly polite. Oh, everybody loved everybody else. Thank you very much for coming. Well, we all have common ancestors. Everything is so wonderful. And then I was like, this is just too comfortable. And let's make it a little uncomfortable. So I in invited um, 
the chaplain, if he maybe wanted to ask a difficult question to the imam, and then I asked a difficult question to the imam, and then I asked the imam if he wanted to ask a difficult question to the to the Baptist chaplain, um, which was sort of like, you know, I understand all of the, the, your, your interest in interfaith activity, but look at what the church has done to Muslims over the, over the years. And for the first time in two weeks in Iraq, I did something which I had purposely not done, uncomfortably, but purposely not done, which is tell people that I was that I'm Jewish because of the, essentially because of what happened to Danny Pearl when you get yourself into difficult situations, sometimes they're not knowing you're Jewish can be a life-saving thing. And I felt uncomfortable, but I'd chosen not to say it. So I said to this imam, um, would you like, the, I'm Jewish, would you like to ask me a difficult question? Um, and um, he then proceeded to ask me why if the Jews were so into interfaith relations, how come Muslims couldn't worship freely in uh, Iraq, I mean, excuse me, in Jerusalem, which I actually told them I thought that there was more freedom of worship under the Jews than there had been under the Muslims. Um, and then the, he invited me to go the next day to take a tour of this mosque in the center of Baghdad. And I tell this story not because of any particularly earth-shattering um, um, any particular earth-shattering uh, breakthrough occurred in this conversation. But to me, it, it represents, I think, a, a powerful message of the possibility of this conversation, both for the commonalities that can be found in this conversation and the benefits of having the difficulties. The goal here is not one religion. It's not people holding hands and dancing kumbaya around the campfire. The goal here is the imam can have his religion, the chaplain can have his religion, I can have my religion, we can respect one another and be side by side. And what I've taken from my experience in this conversation the last couple of years is that we have to get over that thing that our mamas all told us, which is don't talk about politics and religion in public. Well, guess what? The extremists talk about religion in public. What are those planes going into those buildings other than extremists saying, my God is better than your God? Jerry Falwell was on TV recently saying Muhammad was a terrorist. We're supposed to declare war on Islam? So what I've taken from this experience is that we have to get over that thing. We have to be willing to talk about politics and religion in public. And in particular, what we have to do is we can't sit back and say, I hope they solve that problem over there in Kabul. Wouldn't it be nice if they get them borders all worked out in Jerusalem? And I hope that they can figure it out in Baghdad. That this conversation has to happen in every neighborhood and in every community and in every heart. And so I stand here today thanking you for inviting me and acknowledging you're coming out. And I ask, why not here? And why not you? Thank you very much. Bruce is uh, uh, willing to entertain question and discussion, as he challenged us to in just a moment ago. What we would like to ask or remind you is that if you have comments, questions, to use these microphones at the front of uh, Campbell Hall so that the UC television can record your comments and questions. So, please. They need you to come. I think what he needs you to do is come down here. 
Someone want to start us off while the people are walking down here? Here we go. I'll, I'll start us off. Hi, I'm Steve Cohen. I'm the Hillel Rabbi here. Good to see you. Welcome. Good. I really enjoyed your Thank your you comments. very much. I'm a, I'm a little bit um, uh, worried <laughs> about my own ability to participate in a, in a conversation like that only because... Um, what I'm wondering is, do I need, do you feel that, that a Jew needs to, to be able to participate in an Abraham conversation with a Christian and a Muslim? Does a Jew need to be able to say, I understand that Abraham wasn't a Jew? Because it's too deep, it's too important to me to be able to say, you know, my father Abraham, the Jew. I mean, it's just, it's so basic to my understanding of Judaism and, and of who Abraham was. And so I suppose I could go to a conversation and be polite and, uh, you know, um, say the nice things. But, but ultimately, I, as much as I, um, I know that Christianity and Islam have their own accounts of who Abraham was, I, I don't really see myself being open to that on, a, on any kind of a deep level. Well, first of all, I appreciate your honesty, and um, I, this is, the issue of was Abraham a Jew is something that's very painful for Jews, and let me get to that in a second. But let me first of all take a step back and address the, issue, the first thing you raised, which is what is it like to participate in these conversations. The most valuable thing that I have learned about what it means to participate in interfaith conversation, I learned actually from a rabbi in New York who had done a lot of it in the wake of 9-11 down at Ground Zero, and he said a couple things, which in this Abraham Salon packet I have on my website, I've listed. And the, the two most valuable th things I heard him say were, number one, participants in interfaith conversations should not speak in first-person plural. They should speak in first-person singular. And what that means is that we should not feel the need to speak for our religions. We Jews believe this. We Christians believe that. Because what that does is that puts us in a position of defending the faith and trying to apologize and explain thousands of years of behavior rather than making it more intimate and saying, this is what I feel. This is what I think. So I, first of all, pass that along and I acknowledge what you did even in this conversation, which is that I find it, not other Jews find it difficult. I personally find it difficult to address the is Abraham a Jew question. The second thing I, 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 that he said which I found valuable is that there is, there is great virtue in being prepared to say something negative about your own faith before you say something negative about someone else's, um, which is also what you just did knowingly or unknowingly in your conversation. I think one of the reasons that Abraham is helpful in, the, in this conversation is because it goes so far back, and you go back to the common roots and you begin to see how we got where you are. Now to one of the most difficult questions that I've had to face, which is, is Abraham a Jew? This is incredibly emotional for Jews in particular. I think that one of the reasons, just de fact, as a matter of factuality, if there is such a thing in religion, um, Abraham would have been born around 2000 BCE. Okay? Nothing, in Abraham, and what, and nothing in Abraham's life bears any resemblance to contemporary Judaism. I mean, what does he do? He, try, he leaves his father's house, he builds some altars, he has a conversation with God. But the basic building blocks of Judaism, as you know much better than I, come much later 
in Babylon, where I just was last week, when they're in exile, later after the destruction of the Second Temple, the basic building blocks of Judaism today are what? Reading the Torah. Well, obviously the Torah comes after Abraham because most of it transpires after his death. Okay? Going to synagogue. There were no synagogues. Okay? Celebrating Passover. That comes with Moses. So the basic building blocks of Judaism, qua Judaism, the religion, clearly come after Abraham's life. So I think it is possible for Jews and frankly for Christians and Muslims to say that Abraham might be the biological father of the people who become Jews and to not be a Jew himself. And I think that one, Abraham is a flawed vessel for interfaith dialogue. But I think that ultimately he's the best vessel we've got and it's specifically for this reason. Moses is much more important to Jews. Jesus is much more important to Christians. Muhammad is much more important to Muslims. And yet, each of the religions has chosen to keep Abraham central to their identity. A lot of biblical figures died off. Thousands of years later, they keep going back and taking the original link, putting the, taking the bungee cord, going all the way back to Abraham. Well, why is that? Because God and Abraham formed this partnership in Genesis 12, and it's never been able to be undone. And it's God choice, God's choice to make Abraham his partner, and they choose each other, as I said earlier, and I think that therefore there is, a, from that point, a, a, an, a partnership between God and humanity, which goes through Abraham, which is to say you can't get to Abraham, you can't get to God without going through Abraham. So I think that Abraham can be the biological heir and the spiritual heir, or in Christianity, the faith heir of the faiths and not belong to the faiths himself. That was a long Thank answer. You. Okay. I believe in your book you said that uh, Islam and Christianity both had a um, triumphalism as part of their uh, religion and the, therefore maybe the difficulty to get together when that's part of the... Um, Teachings. Could you comment on that? Well, I think that this this is the word triumphalism is a fancy and not particularly attractive word that says we have the exclusive claim to God, that our religion can can be should be the universal religion can be can and should wipe out other religions. I think it's worth noting um, that Judaism had this also in its past. Um, if you read this new book I'm working on on the second half of the Hebrew Bible and the birth of religion in the first millennium talks a lot about King David and in David and Solomon's time Judaism was the triumphal religion having taken over Jerusalem conquered the promised land and itself was an empire that spread out and was interested in spreading its domain uh, all around the region um, but what happened of course was that first uh, uh, Sennacherib comes from Nineveh uh, and wipes out the kingdom of Israel in the 7th century, and then here comes Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon in the 6th century and wipes out Jerusalem and takes the elite of the Israelites and ships them off to Babylon into exile, and there goes Jewish triumphalism, almost before Judaism was invented. So, um, And then Christianity originally starts as the minority that wants to sort of essentially attach itself to Judaism as a branch of Judaism and then once it grows stronger it wants to extinguish Jews and everybody else and Islam the same thing and in its early years Islam was also the minority that wanted to sort of curry favor with the older religions of Judaism and Christianity but eventually wants to wipe them out. 
But yes, if you look back, a hundred, I mean, the triumphalism is deep. I mean, Islam was trying to spread itself across Europe, across North Africa and Europe until it basically, basically reached Vienna in the 16th century and was forced to stop. And certainly Christianity through, you know, colonialism, if you went a hundred years ago, Christianity seems to have, seemed to have won. And if you went to 19, if we were having this conversation in 1900, um, Judaism was ghettoized around the world. Uh, Islam had slunk back into the sands of the Ottoman Empire, and Christianity seemed to be the dominant religion. Well, what a difference a hundred years makes. Uh, first of all, the colonial uprising it sort of ends colonialism, and Christianity uh, gets put back in its place. Here comes Judaism. Uh, resurgent and resplendent after 2,000 years and goes back to the land for the first time. And then, of course, it turns out that the global capitalism works best on Middle Eastern oil, which gives a lot of authority to the Muslims, and here comes Islam back again. So I think that where you are now is sort of like, almost like a stalemate. The idea of triumphalism today is deader than it's ever been. The idea that one religion is going to take over the whole world I mean, yeah, maybe some people believe that, but it's very few. Maybe a few really right-wing evangelical Christians. And maybe Osama bin Laden believes that he can spread Islam around the world. But basically, the idea that one religion is going to take over the world is deader now than it's ever been. So essentially, those are the choices. It's triumphalism, it's one religion, or it's figuring out a way that we all get along. And I think that figuring out a way that we all get along is really the call of the hour. Yes, ma'am. I'm in a book group, and we chose to read your book for our club. Thank you. Um, it is a Christian book group, Trinity Lutheran Women, we're reading it. So I want to ask you a question about questions. What would you propose as a question or a group of questions we could uh, discuss as a group that would um, cover political issues for um, Christians, looking at this book as a, a political book, as well as um, different religions Getting along. Well, let me first of all answer that by saying um, thank you for choosing it. I hope you guys have a great conversation. And um, um, and let me just also tell you, I know you're walking back, but uh, I actually have written a discussion guide. If you go to BruceFiler.com and you click through onto discussions, there is a discussion guide um, that you can download, which has lots of questions. But I would say that my advice would be. Stay away from politics as long as possible. It will eventually get there. Don't worry. Um, but there's some value, I think, in going back to the ancient texts and trying to stay there as long as possible. Um, and I would say having half the conversation be about the actual story. And, and I've been male groups as well as female groups, but I mean, one of the interesting questions is the whole, the relationship of the women. I mean, really, the Abraham story is ultimately a story about the women. It's a battle between Sarah and Hagar. I mean, I view the story as um, I'm a big believer that the, the, the story of the Hebrew Bible, particularly the Torah part of it, is all the story of the Fertile Crescent. The, the Fertile Crescent we learn about in third grade, then we never talk about again, which is sort of a shame. The, the, we should all bow down to the Fertile Crescent every morning because it's why we're here. I will now become, through the wonders of television, the Fertile Crescent. Okay. <laughs> The upper arm of the Fertile Crescent is Mesopotamia, where I just was in Iraq, the Tigris and Euphrates coming together. And the lower arm is Egypt down here in, um, in the Nile, and the middle is the Promised Land. And essentially what happens in, in the ancient world is that the Mesopotamians would come here. It, the, the Fertile Crescent is like a modern American shopping mall. Okay? You've got anchor stores on either end, and you've got boutique stores in the middle. Okay? 
I come from a real estate family. This is how I view the world. Okay. So basically what would happen was the Mesopotamians would come down and control the promised land for a while. Then the Egyptians would come and push them back. Here come the Mesopotamians. And it was this battle um, over the promised land. So that's in some ways why God promised this land to Abraham because it's the only part that was open. Um, this was occupied. This was occupied. So he's like, you go there and fend for yourself. So um, essentially that's the story of Abraham. Because Sarah was born in Mesopotamia. Hagar is from Egypt. She's from down here. Sarah's child is Isaac. Um, Hagar's child is Ishmael. You can read the entire story of Abraham as a story of the struggle of the women who represent both arms of the Fertile Crescent for control of the Promised Land. That should be 20 minutes in your book club right there. <laughs> Who's next over here? Yes. Are there uh, other sources besides the Hebrew Testament that we have, written sources that talk about Abraham? Yeah, that's a good question. The, the, um, the, uh, the really quite... I had a great conversation with a reporter from the Santa Barbara paper. I was in the cab coming back from the airport the other day. And we were talking about this. I think, off the top of my head, if I had to estimate, that probably only 1% of the stories of Abraham written down in human history appear in the Hebrew Bible. Um, there are a number of stories that appear in the Koran, just as a basic matter. And there's an apocalypse of Abraham. There's all these stories from antiquity. And the way we're just learning with the Gospels or all these Gnostic Gospels that didn't become canonized, there's stories about Abraham even in, um, even in um, the Dead Sea Scrolls that um, do not appear in the Hebrew Bible. So there are lots of stories. There, what there isn't is um, an easily findable compendium. You can't really go to the library and get other stories about Abraham, Volume 3. Um, there is... For example, the, there in Louis Ginsburg, there's a couple of co collections of Jewish sort of legends and, and folk tales that have been written over time. Uh, I see the librarian here from the synagogue nodding her head. So you can go to a libra library and get, say, the Louis Ginsburg collection of, um, of legends. So you can find them, but it is, it, is, it is a little bit difficult. But there definitely are lots of written stories that, like the Bible, were written hundreds if not thousands of years after you would have lived. Yes, sir. I was just curious on your take on um, the impact of, of the, in the current administration of the, the religious influence, the evangelical influence on um, our Middle Eastern policy. Yeah, the question is about um, the influence of um, religious ideas in our current Middle East policy. The, uh, that is really that is a topic that is increasingly interesting to me. I, I uh, first of all, I read this fascinating, if not frightening, article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago about the impact of Bernard Lewis on the war in Iraq. Bernard Lewis, who of course, has written, I'm sure many of you have read his books, What Went Wrong, or The Crisis in Islam, or I mean, he's an incredibly eminent Islamicist in his 80s, he's at Princeton, and one of Bernard Lewis's trenchant ideas is that you, is that power is the, is the main component of life in the Middle East. And he was apparently, according to this Wall Street Journal article, having secret, undisclosed, one-on-one -on -one meetings with the vice president, um, a number of the architects of, of the neoconservative vision for the Middle East have been students or work closely with Bernard Lewis. And we're now just beginning to see that in the wake of 9-11, he was giving a lot of private, previously undisclosed counsel that was really pushing us in a lot of ways toward this war in Iraq. 
Um, I spent last Sunday afternoon, almost exactly a week ago, if you don't count the time difference, um, in Ambassador Paul Bremer's office in the Republican Palace in Baghdad. And Ambassador Bremer is a deeply believing Catholic. One of his leading aides, a guy named Dan Sinor, is a deeply believing Jew who, among other things, was apparently trying to keep kosher for months in Baghdad. Um, which I can, only, I, I, I can only imagine how he did it. I actually did meet the, a man who called himself the last rabbi of Baghdad. There's 22 Jews left, and he actually knew had knives to do official um, kosher meat slaughtering. I, I don't think Dan Sinor was getting meat from him. But the, um, and I asked him this question point blank. Um, and I didn't expect him to give an answer, and he didn't give me an answer. Um, he said what Ambassador Bremer definitely says on television a lot, which is I wasn't here when the policy was created. I was a businessman. I was just sent into Iraq afterwards. But I know that, for example, one of the things that Ambassador Bremer has done is he quotes, and, and, and I asked him this, and he told me in every one of his speeches, he quotes Jeremiah. And Jeremiah talks about the uh, destruction of Babylon as a penalty for what happened with um, the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroying the Israelites. Now, Jeremiah is not necessarily big in Islam, and you can read into that. Here's the American ambassador, the de facto president of the country, quoting Christian scripture um, in a Muslim country, perhaps in a way that is not going over very well. Um, I, I, I believe it is not insignificant. If, if Saddam Hussein was the, was the dictator of Rwanda, do I think we would have gone into what we went into? I doubt it. Obviously economic interest, obviously democracy in the Middle East is a factor, but you cannot, um, you cannot um, discount, I think, the spiritual significance of what transpired. And when you go to these places, as I have just done over the last two weeks, and you stand in Nineveh, as I did on Tuesday morning, and you read the book of Jonah, which is about the destruction of Nineveh. Jonah basically, God says to Jonah, go tell the Ninevites that I'm going to destroy them because of what they did to Israel. And he doesn't want to do it. He goes running off and he goes off in a boat and he ends up in the ocean. He gets swallowed in the whale. So Jonah gets swallowed, Jonah gets swallowed up into the whale on his way to Nineveh. And inside the whale he finds God and then he goes to Nineveh. And what he says to Nineveh is that you're going to die, you're going to be destroyed, and you're such a bad dictator... He doesn't, it doesn't say Sennacherib, but that's who he's talking about. You're such a bad dictator that everyone's going to applaud when you fall down and no one's going to shed a tear for you. And you read that in the remains of Nineveh, as I did on Tuesday, and you cannot help think of Saddam Hussein. So I have to say, I do think it is rich. And I will say one more thing, um, and that is, I believe, and I've worked closely with the Bishop of Washington, a wonderful man named John Chain, a guy named uh, Akbed Am uh, um, Akbed Akbar Ahmed, who is a professor of Islamic studies at American University and a rabbi at Washington Hebrew Congregation, Bruce Lustig, to do interfaith activities in Washington. And there have been conversations in the administration, and the administration has said, if there is going to be, if the, if the U.S. government is going to get involved in any of this, the people who believe in interfaith are going to have to prove themselves as a political force, because the evangelical Christians have proven themselves as a political force, and right now, their administration is focused on pleasing them. And until the interfaith people stand up and speak loudly, they're not going to get attention, at least from this administration, I'm afraid. Yes, sir. 
I was curious, as you um, entered into a dialogue with people of different faiths, were there different interpretations about Sarah's role in the story and the life of Abraham? Well, I will say this about Sarah's role. First of all, I have found that speaking about the Bible openly and honestly in public is difficult enough. But speaking about the red tent openly and honestly in public is almost impossible. Um, the red tent, of course, is the Anita Diamond novel about, about women in the, in the Hebrew Bible, and people are really passionate about it, and to criticize it is extremely touchy. Um, I think that, yeah, is there a difference? Yeah, I would say that a lot of people want to like Sarah. And guess what? The Bible doesn't seem to like Sarah all that much. I mean, it is Sarah whose idea it is, it's consistent with religious law at the time, for Abraham to have a child with Hagar. But, I mean, Hagar is pregnant. It was her idea. Takes Hagar, gives him to Abraham, she gets pregnant, and then while she's pregnant before the baby's even born, um, Sarah gets angry and kicks her off into the desert. Um, and essentially tries to kill her and the unborn child at the time. And then God goes out and comforts her, and then it comes back, and then Sarah has uh, Isaac, of course, and then there's this rivalry, and Sarah forces Abraham to kick Ishmael off into the desert. So Sarah, I have to say, does not come across very well. Meanwhile, if you're looking for a hero in the story, go no further than Hagar. When, when Hagar is out in the desert, pregnant, without having given birth to Ishmael, God comes and speaks to Hagar, and Hagar says to God, you are El Roy. Sarah is the only person, male or female, in the entire Hebrew Bible who ever names God directly. I'm sorry, did I say Sarah? Hagar is the only person in the Bible, male or female, who ever names God directly. Then later, after the son is born, when, when uh, Hagar is going to kick the boy out in the desert, uh, God comes to Hagar and says, your son will become the leader of a great nation. God says that to other people, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Hagar is the only woman who gets this uh, promise from God, making her, in effect, a female patriarch. So, while Sarah does not come across very well, I think the hero of the story is Hagar. And in a lot of African-American communities today, there is a, a new bond that's been developing between African-American women and Hagar because they see in her the beleaguer, beleaguered, underappreciated slave woman who God um, has a relationship with. And so now you're starting to see a, a real a worshiping of Hagar coming to fruition. I see him standing up. I've got five more minutes, so let's just take maybe one more question and maybe a second quick one. It's with a little trepidation I ask this question, but uh, I've been really puzzled and troubled by one piece of scripture. I think it's in Genesis 20. I'm not sure, but it's about Ishmael. And it's the one that says that he will be a wild donkey of a man and that he will always be at enmity or at odds with his brothers. Now what do you do with a text like that? And very few people seem to talk about that, but what, and I believe it's God who says that, does he not, to Hagar? The, um, well, you're right that there is this text that says you will be a wild, he will be a wild ass of the man and his, his, his arm will be on your neck or whatever, somebody will correct me so I won't misquote it here. Um, but. I'm not quite sure that people don't talk about it because in Jerusalem it's talked about rather all the time. I see there's an Israeli in the front row I met earlier. He's nodding his head. Uh, it's, it, you hear it quite a lot. Um, and there's a conversation in my, tech, in my, in my book where, where um, an Orthodox Jew uh, cites that line to me. I, I think that the first thing that you do is uh, understand what it means in the term. The term, it's translated in many Bibles as being ass. 
Um, and um, a lot of people uh, associate that with the negative connotations that that word has meant. You translated it as donkey, which I think um, in, in the conversations I've had in the study I've done of this particular line, I think is a greater reflection of this wild donkey that roams freely in the Middle East as opposed to someone who is more, as opposed to an animal that is more domesticated. So I think there is that first line. But I think that, that what I think... Um, I think that what, if you're trying to understand that line in the context of what we're talking about today, I think, first of all, you can ask, your, the, 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 the text accurately anticipates that there will be tension between the descendants of Abraham and the descendants of Isaac, which I think is factually true. But I think that the text clearly wants to bless Ishmael. I mean, lots of people go off into the desert and are never heard from again. God specifically says, you will become the leader of a great nation. You, your 12 sons will be princes. I mean, God doesn't have to be saying that. I mean, the, the Bible has perfect recall when it wants to and perfect control over its words. So the fact that there is a balance between saying there will be tension between the two sons and that Ishmael will become a great prince, I think is very clear. And if you were further looking for meaning, I think, again, you have to put it in the context of Isaac. Isaac is one of the least impressive people in the entire Hebrew Bible. I mean, there's a whole strand of biblical interpretation that says Isaac actually may have been mentally disabled because he doesn't do anything. You know, he, he meekly submits um, when um, uh, Abraham takes him up there for the sacrifice. After the sacrifice, he basically does nothing. He's, he's basically not heard from. He's then duped by his children in the later the scene between Jacob and Esau. And Abraham, when, it, when Jacob goes, they send Jacob back to Mesopotamia, back to the, to the motherland to get, a, to get a wife. Okay? Isaac doesn't even get to go. Abraham has to send somebody on Isaac's behalf to go get a wife for him. Because he's perceived as not being able to go. So I think that while it might say that, that, that Ishmael is going to be a violent person, it shows, I think, that Isaac, if you're going to read this much into it, is a pretty weak person himself. And I've also heard Jews talk disparagingly about Isaac and say that, that Isaac is so submissive that that is a bad model for Jews. So I think that you cannot just read into it negative about the children of Ishmael. There's plenty of negativity about Isaac as well. You know, the testimony of a great presentation is that the comments and the questions escalate and more people want to ask questions than we actually have time for. I'm very sorry um, yeah, that we have to end at this point. Okay. Um, unless you want to take... I'll take one more. You're standing there. I'll give okay. you one more and then, we'll, and then we'll, we'll wrap it all up. Thank you for your watching of the clock. Hi. I, have, I was hoping that you could maybe shed some understanding on the purported words of Christ in the New Testament when he says... Change my mind. Before <laughs> you cut it off right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a quick quote. He supposedly said, before Abraham was, yes, I, I am. am. Yes, yes. Um, oh, I didn't even know you were going to go there. Oh, yes, the, I think that... Um, that's a, that's, a, that's a line in, in John 8, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, always dangerous to quote uh, verses. And I think that um, this is one of the most, um, like the line in Matthew that we're seeing haunting us today in, in cineplexes around America, this is a very volatile line. And the, basically uh, what's happening is, is there's yet another fight between Jesus, the Jew, 
Shall we not forget Jesus the Jew with the Jews who do not want to follow Jesus' interpretation of Judaism. And, he, and, and they're talking about, are you a descendant of Abraham? And, and Jesus says, before, um, before Abraham was, I am. John, I'm certainly not, an, I'm not a biblical scholar at all, and I'm certainly not a New Testament scholar. I, there's a whole passage in my book about this line. And I think the first of all, John is the most spiritual of the Gospels. And of the four Gospels, it's the one that most explores the, the, the idea of Jesus as a larger spiritual um, being as much as a human being. Um, and I think that that line can in partly be seen in that context. And I think that while the message of that line might in a very narrow context be designed to communicate the idea that that Jesus as a spiritual link to God has eternity in his life and he existed before and after he actually lived on earth. The problem with that line is that it was one of the lines that those wishing to spread anti-Semitism seized on as a way of saying, see, the Jews were bad, and see, Jesus supplanted Abraham. So while there's a whole tradition saying that Jesus comes in the tradition of Abraham as a man of faith, there was this tradition that came in the earlier centuries of Christianity, which was trying to essentially depopulate, basically cut the Jews off from the line and make a direct connection between Abraham to Jesus and cut off Moses, because Paul and other early Christians didn't want to follow the law. And, and one of the reasons that the, the Christians like the Genesis 12 is because Abraham wasn't circumcised at the time. Circumcision comes later with the birth of Ishmael and Isaac. And so Paul in particular seized on Genesis 12 because it was the moment when it's a pure act of faith before their circumcision. So we can say, look, you can be a child of faith and you can be a descendant of Abraham without having to mess with all this circumcision business, which the Gentiles didn't want to do. So again, you have to draw a distinction between what the line means in context and how the line was interpreted um, later years. Thank you all for coming. Um, and thank you for your hospitality.